Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Happy, as always, to be a part of your precious podcast listening time. It is so great to have Michael Woolreich as my guest today. He is a writer whose work has appeared in Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, and other publications and news outlets. He is also the critically acclaimed author of three books, including his most recent publication, out on February 6th, called The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. Welcome to the podcast. I so appreciate you coming on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor. I'm delighted to, uh, to talk about my book. Thank you. Yeah. So when did this story first cross your path, and what inspired you to put it to paper? Well, so I was looking around for a topic, and you know, I write about my, my last books have been more about politics, politics and history. So my, my previous book was on Theodore Roosevelt, and I was looking around for a topic. Uh, and one of the things when you write about history and politics, uh, you want to write about people that uh, that most people know about that are famous, because otherwise nobody cares too much. But on the other hand, those people tend to be written about a lot. Uh, so you have to find an angle. Uh, so I was kind of digging into FDR and everyone knows much about his presidency, uh, but nobody knows much about his time as governor. Uh, and so as I was kind of digging into his time as governor and looking into these uh, investigations that were led by a former judge named Samuel Seabury, uh, which investigated uh, Tammany Hall, the old political machine that used to run New York City, uh, and found rampant corruption, uh, leading all the way up to the to the mayor, Mayor Jimmy Walker. Uh, so that that you know in itself was an interesting story. Um, but then I came across one reference saying I think it was it might even have been on Wikipedia that to uh, a Vivian Gordon whose murder case played a role in those investigations, and I didn't know who Vivian Gordon was, and I think I clicked clicked the link. 
And, you know, there was no page associated with Vivian Gordon. And as I said, who's Vivian Gordon? And so I began digging into her and her murder was fascinating. Uh, it was a fascinating case in its own right. And the way it played into these historic investigations that changed the course of history in New York was amazing. And I said, this is a great story. I've got to write this. Yeah. Yeah. Vivian Gordon is just a fascinating character. So layered, so complex. Yeah, yeah, she's. I mean, she she's. You know, she on one hand, she's this. You know, she was a she was a criminal. She uh, uh, was a predator. Uh, so in in one in some ways, she's you know a very negative character. On the other hand, the people she was blackmailing and and um, taking advantage of were not the nicest folks. And she had you know suffered herself in her life and had been kind of pushed into this life of crime. And so what she was doing was a, a form of uh, revenge in a way that allowed her to uh, survive and to kind of pay back uh, some of the folks who had put her into the situation. Right, right. Yeah. So I know you've talked a little about this already, but before we get into the nuts and bolts of the story, can you set the scene for us? What was going on in New York City um, in early 1931, especially in the, the political realm? Uh, sure. So I you mentioned previously this investigation uh, that the governor of New York, uh, FDR, uh, had initiated reluctantly. The, the political machine that ran New York City was extremely powerful. Uh, it was called Tammany Hall. It, it ran New York for over a century. Uh, starting not long after the Revo American Revolution. And even FDR was hesitant to get on the wrong side of the bosses who ran Tammany Hall. Uh, the reason being because he was already thinking about running for president. Uh, and he needed the support of the Tammany bosses who controlled a lot of de delegates at the de Democratic National Convention. So he, he didn't want to piss them off. Uh, on the other hand, there were a lot of scandals going on, and he was worried that people would see him as being weak if he didn't start some investigations and start trying to address uh, some of these scandals, these corruption scandals. There was bribery. Uh, there were judges who bought their seats on the bench. Uh, and if he didn't address those, he would look weak and, and people wouldn't vote for him. So he finally set up this, this limited investigation and he appointed a judge, a former judge named Samuel Seabury, uh, who had at one time run for governor of New York and Seabury had an impeccable reputation. Uh, he was very imperious and moralizing. He, he hated corruption. He'd always hated Tammany Hall, uh, even though he was a Democrat, uh, like the Tammany bosses were. And so FDR felt that if he appointed this judge, then nobody could accuse him of being weak on Tammany Hall. Uh, well, Seabury took that opportunity that he'd been given and he ran with it. He found, you know, a number of instances of, of judges and other public officials that had bank, unexplained bank accounts that far surpassed their salary. Um, and he exposed they were doing, you know, these deals, like one judge had awarded uh, a shipping company the uh, a license to, uh, uh, to serve New York, for example, in return for a payback. 
Uh, there were things like that. So we started exposing those, but then he came across something more sinister. Uh, there was a man named uh, Chilia Kuna, uh, who was a Chilean immigrant. And he walked into Seabury's office one day and he said he had a story to tell. He said that he was a stool pigeon, uh, which is a, the slang for people that the police used to basically to entrap people that they were trying to arrest. And this Chilia Kuna said that he'd been a stool pigeon for years and he would help police arrest prostitutes. He would enter an apartment and offer money to the woman who was there. And then the police would then rush in and arrest them. But what Akuna said is that many of these women, most of these women were framed. They were not, many of them weren't prostitutes at all. And the police were just doing this essentially to line their own pockets. Because what the police would do, would they they'd take these, these women they'd arrested they bring them to uh, the courthouse. There was a women's court uh, in, in the West Village of Manhattan. And uh, they would drop the women off at uh, these offices across the street where there were these crooked bondsmen and crooked lawyers. And the lawyer would say, well, if you pay my expensive fee, then we'll make this case disappear. And so if the woman had the money, then the lawyer would give kickbacks to the cops uh, the cops wouldn't show up at the trial and the woman would, woman would get off. And if, on the other hand, the woman didn't have the money, well, then she was sentenced to the reformatory uh, upstate and branded a prostitute. So these investigations were going on in the late 1930s and the beginning of 1931 uh, when Vivian Gordon was murdered. And she was actually caught up in these, and that's how the story gets kicked off. Yes, yep. So, I guess let's start with the morning of February 26th, 1931. A man walking to work stumbled upon a really gruesome scene, right? It was in Van Cortlandt Park in the Bronx. Can you tell us what he saw? Uh, yeah, so it was, it was February 26th. It was in the middle of winter, uh, but the, the, it, it had been a little warm, and so the, the snow had melted off the ground. And this this guy... Emmanuel Kamna was just walking to work uh, along a path that goes through this park, Van Cortlandt Park. It's a big, big park, bigger than Central Park uh, in the Bronx. And he saw a, a white glove caught on a branch uh, near the side of the road. Then he went a little further and he saw the body, the body of a woman, uh, well-dressed in, a, in a, a black cocktail dress and um, suede, suede shoes, uh, and he could see immediately that she was dead. So he he hailed a, a passing truck driver, and they drove off and notified the police who came to investigate this body. And it's a police officer named Harry Bruckman who soon arrives, right? Uh, one of the more competent men in the NYPD. What did he see? Were there clues left behind that, that helped him determine her identity? Uh, well, so he's he's... You know, initially, he doesn't have much to go on. He's got, you know, he, he sees she's this beautiful woman. He thinks, you know, he estimates her be, age as being in her, her 20s. The, he can see that she's been strangled to death by a, a rope. There's a, looks like a, a dirty clothesline that's wrapped three times around her neck and twisted off tightly. Uh, so he knows the cause. He doesn't know who the woman is. There's no identification. She has no 
uh, no valuable jewelry on her or any way to identify who she is. So he's, you know, thinking about the possibilities and could be, it could be theft, but it seems odd that someone would str- you know, take the trouble to strangle someone before stealing their jewelry, say. Uh, so he initially assumes that it was some, as he, as he put it uh, in, the, in the terminology of the day, a maniac uh, who had killed her. But he takes your fingerprints and he sends them back down to the offices downtown and they check the fingerprints and discover that uh, this woman has an arrest uh, record. She was first arrested. Uh, her, her name was Benita Bischoff and she was first arrested in 1923 for prostitution at the same women's court uh, that I was just speaking about earlier. Uh, she was arrested and even though it's her, her first offense, even though she had a young daughter, uh, she was sent to a reformatory upstate. Now, after that, they find more records of her, uh, about this woman. That was associated with these fingerprints. That was the only time she was convicted, but she was arrested on other occasions from disorderly conduct to blackmail, not convicted, and she'd used a different name for those subsequent court cases. Uh, she used the name Vivian Gordon. Uh, they, they also had an address for her uh, down in, a, in what's Mur- the neighborhood of Murray Hill in Manhattan, which is a, was then and still is a fairly fancy neighborhood uh, in Manhattan. And they went to her apartment, which was a, a brand new apartment with an elevator building, fairly luxurious. And they started looking for clues. And what they found uh, set off earthquakes throughout New York City, uh, because one of the first things they found were a set of black books. And those black books, some of them were were daily diaries where she talked about well, her last three years living and committing crimes in New York City. Uh, others were a list of names or of many gangsters, prominent gangsters, uh, like Legs Diamond and Arnold Rothstein. Uh, as well as many wealthy and prominent New Yorkers. And so uh, Inspector Bruckman, when he saw these black books, he speculated that she was some kind of blackmailer. They figured out that these men were in her her list. Many of them were her targets. Uh, She would either either her victims or people that she planned to uh, go after. And so she would meet these men and, and date them and, and try to get money from them, accept their gifts. And then after the relationship was over, uh, she would blackmail them. And many times they would pay and she actually earned quite a nice living that enabled her to invest in uh, real estate and loan money to gangsters. Uh, and she did quite well for herself. But that was not the most sensational thing they found. The most sensational thing was a letter, and the letter was from uh, the Seabury Commission that had uncovered the framing uh, in the women's court and inviting her to come and speak with them about her experience. She had been arrested in 1923, as I mentioned, and as, as we were saying, she believed that she had been framed by her ex-husband and a crooked cop. Uh, to win custody of her daughter, her eight-year-old daughter, uh, who was also named Benita. And she told this to her parole officer, 
when she was sentenced to the reformatory. And it was this, this crime that she'd been convicted for that had set her off on this life of crime. Before that, she'd been, she was an actress, and then she was, uh, you know, a mother living at home in Philadelphia, had been separated from her husband, uh, was in New York. Her daughter was a, a very talented dancer, and so she was taking her daughter uh, to audition uh, for some of these big shows. And it was during that time uh, that she was arrested. And then once branded a prostitute, she lost custody of her daughter. She had no way to earn an honest living. And that's what had set her on the life of crime. Now, it turned out that uh, a mere five days before her murder, she had met with investigators from the Seabury Commission. So that led everyone to assume that she had been bumped off, silenced, to prevent her from testifying about what she knew. So in their search of her swanky apartment, other items were found as well, including a book that seemed to suggest that she was running an escort service. Uh, yes, you're absolutely right. She had her she had her fingers in a number of pies. So she had a, she had a book that had a list of of young women, and the, you know had their their height and their weight, naked pictures of them. Uh, so she was getting into the call service business, uh, of which there were others at the time. The most famous was uh, was run by Polly Adler, uh, New York's most fa- famous uh, madam, uh, who Vivian Gordon had, had a relationship with and sometimes worked for. Uh, but some of these women, uh, she also tried to train in her own arts, uh, you might say. She called them uh, the, her, her young 49ers. Uh, as in as in gold diggers, and she would instruct them to collect information about the men that they met at parties uh, that they could then use uh, to take advantage of uh, either through blackmail or by seducing them and getting getting gifts from them and you know these these young 49ers when they you know when they earn money from a man, then uh, Vivian Gordon would take her cut. Uh, she also worked with uh, a lawyer named John Radloff, a Brooklyn lawyer, uh, who was her uh, her lover, at least for a time, as well as her lawyer and her partner in crime. And throughout her diaries, you see frequent warnings about the threats that John Radloff has made against her uh, and the things, you know, he, he said he had a, had a henchman named Chatterhead Cohen, who would take her out in the middle of nowhere and uh, kill her. It's, it's an odd relationship that she has with him because he, in large part, was responsible for her change of fortune. She gets out of the reformatory. She's pretty much destitute, down on her luck. And then she meets this rattle-off character who introduces her to a whole new world making money, investing in real estate, but he's also pulling her into these sordid schemes. He's abusing her, taking advantage of her. It's it's complicated and disturbing, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly uh, an abusive relationship, uh, mental if not, if not physical. And she, she, in her diaries, she discusses trying to get away from him and, uh, you know, promises herself that this is it, this is the end. And then she goes back to him and they're, you know, she's also loaning money to him and he's involving her in some of his schemes 
at at uh, his encouragement. She invested in. She loaned money to some bank robbers who were doing a job in Oslo, Norway. Uh, she paid for their passage overseas to do this inside job in Norway. There were also, you know, whenever she would blackmail somebody, uh, John Radloff would then go to the to the office of that person to to demand payment. So they they worked together and clearly had this complicated, as you said, and unhealthy relationship. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So, so I want to ask you about this really remarkable woman, a reporter named Grace Robinson. She is one of the first in Vivian's apartment. Can you tell us her involvement in the investigation? Uh, sure. So, yeah, Grace Robinson uh, was a fascinating person. And, I, you know, initially when I was doing my research for the book, I, you know, I'd see her name in a lot of these articles for the, for the Daily News, uh, which was uh, America's first tabloid uh, and was was really in its heyday at that time, um, and really had some fantastic reporting on crime uh, in New York. You know, that was you know before that it had been these you know regular sized papers, and and Daily News introduced this this tabloid, this half size uh, paper, and they focused on they focused on crime, they focused on sex, they had a lot of pictures, and they made their stories very sensational. So these articles were sort of very helpful in kind of establishing, you know, when I was doing my research in terms of, you know, getting some of the details about what, what was going on here, you know, the descriptions of the 
uh, the crime scene and the uh, and Vivian Gordon's apartment and that sort of thing. So I was seeing this name, and I started digging a little bit more into Grace Robinson, and I realized that she was you know such a fascinating person. She needed to be essentially a character in the story uh, that I'm telling uh, because she was really at the spearhead of the journalistic investigation of, of this crime, and she more than anybody else kept this story uh, on the front pages for weeks. They would, you know, Daily News would give it um, a three-page spread day after day after day as new revelations came out. Now, at that time, you know, these days, it's hard for journalists to get a lot of uh, access uh, to crime scenes and that sort of thing. It was much more, the police were much more lax about it back then. So the police would be, would, hold press conferences in Vivian Gordon's apartment and the reporters would be going through, you know, looking for clues themselves. Themselves, In fact, Grace Robinson found this letter tucked in behind a picture of Vivian Gordon's daughter when she was eight years old or seven years old uh, in a ballet costume. And it was this very plaintive letter that her daughter Benita had written uh, to her mother uh, while she was soon after she was incarcerated, telling her what was happening in her life and how much she missed her mother. And, uh, you know, Vivian Gordon had saved this letter because it w- was one of the only things she had, this letter and these pictures, to remember her daughter by because her husband allowed her absolutely no contact. And that her daughter, Benita, had been everything to her uh, before her incarcer- incarceration. So it was Grace Robinson who made this discovery. Uh, she got a number of, um, she was great at getting interviews. She was, she'd come to New York. She was from, uh, from Omaha. And at that time, you know, there weren't a lot of women reporters and she actually had to get, she wasn't even allowed, I think, to be uh, a reporter at the Omaha Bee uh, at that time, but got special dispensation to do that. And then came to New York uh, to make it in New York. And, you know, the Daily News was pioneering in a number of ways, and they were also pioneering in the sense of hiring women to do their reporting. Uh, so Grace Robins- Robinson uh, started writing uh, for the Society pages uh, anonymously, but she was such a, a hot reporter uh, that she was able to change to the crime beat uh, under her own byline, uh, where she was, you know, she had a way of talking to people that would allow them even hardened gangsters uh, like Legs Diamond that would encourage them to open up to her. And she was very resolute and very dogged uh, about tracking down stories. And she felt that Vivian Gordon had been wronged and she was determined uh, to tell her story. Yeah, yeah. In one example, she tracks down Detective Andrew McLaughlin. He was the cop who she had accused of framing her in 1923. McLaughlin is actually on a cruise during the murder, and, and she's able to get to him before any other reporter. It, it was pretty incredible how quick on her feet she was. So uh, uh, Bruckman, he is convinced that Radloff and Chowderhead Cohen uh, are, are a part of all of this that they are connected to Vivian's murder in some way. Uh, he, he definitely thinks that, uh, I mean, they're, 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 they are the obvious suspects, um, other than, other than the vice cop, uh, Andrew McLaughlin, uh, McLaughlin, who you mentioned. So 
Vivian Gordon, right before her murder, had actually sent uh, triumphant letters to her ex-husband and to uh, the vice cop, Andrew McLaughlin, you know, gloating about how you know she was going to get her revenge and get her daughter back because she was telling everything to the Seabury Commission about what they'd done to frame her. So both her husband, John Bischoff, and uh, Andrew McLaughlin were uh, certainly suspects. But as you mentioned, McLaughlin was on a cruise uh, to Bermuda at the time of the murder. So he certainly couldn't have done it himself. Uh, so that left John Radiloff and his henchman Chatterhead uh, Cohen, who was a, a thug, as the most likely suspects, given everything that Vivian Gordon wrote about in her diary and all the threats uh, that she mentioned and the crimes that she committed with these two men. But there was really, other than the claims in the diary, which weren't admissible in court, uh, they had no evidence uh, that that these two guys did it. There was no, you know, nothing. They didn't have a, you know, they couldn't connect the weapon to them. They both had alibis. The They didn't really have anything to go on. And so uh, Inspector uh, Bruckman and uh, the district attorney arranged to hold these two guys as material witnesses, uh, which uh, at that time they could do for quite a long time. Uh, so they were in jail for weeks being held as witnesses, potentially hostile witnesses, but they could not find any evidence actually connecting them to the crime. And eventually they were freed. So in the meantime, Vivian Gordon's body has been examined and there is a notable forensic chemist named Andrew Gettler working on the case. Can you talk about his involvement and what the autopsy revealed? Uh, yes, absolutely. So, so Gettler was a, a pioneer in, in criminal science, um, specifically in toxicology, and you know he really changed how uh, crimes were investigated, particularly. Uh, particularly crimes of, of poison. You know, there's a great uh, book about it, uh, about him and the cases that he helped solve by Deborah Bloom called The Poisoner's Handbook that uh, I uh, highly recommend. So he, you know, had kind of a small role in this case. He he analyzed the, the contents of Vivian Gordon's stomach and analyzed her brain tissue and discovered that she uh, she was half drunk. So she'd been drinking a little bit, uh, she'd eaten a small meal of, well, it was like an, an egg and some sauerkraut, I think it was, or cabbage. But I mean, the clear cause of death was the strangulation. So there were some other scientists involved, uh, who examined, uh, the rope and, you know, tried to determine what it had been used for. It was sent to, to Columbia University for analysis uh, and there were, you know, all sorts of theories about how it, it had been like, it had been a rope used for horses, but they were never able to figure out where exactly this rope came from. Right, right. So police, of course, were trying to formulate a theory on what happened to her without knowing who it was who killed her. Did they believe she had been murdered at the park or did they believe she had been killed somewhere else and then taken to the park? So Inspector Bruckman assumed, because there were no signs of struggle actually in the park, he assumed that she'd been killed elsewhere, uh, possibly in a car, and then dumped at that uh, remote spot in Van Cortland Park. But, you know, where that murder uh, would have taken place, uh, he, you know, had no idea, or if it was even in New York City, 
within his jurisdiction. And the police were really stumped. There was, there was very intense pressure on the police to solve this crime. Most people assume that Andrew McLaughlin or other cops had, had killed her, silenced them. And so there was great pressure on Inspector Brookman and the police chief, uh, Edward Mulrooney, who took personal responsibility for this case. They had to solve this crime. I mean, it was, it was news. It was daily headlines in New York City, but not just New York City. This, this, this was being reported. This was in the headlines all over the country. I found, I found articles about it as far as Singapore and Australia and Europe. Uh, this case was big news because it was so connected up uh, with Tammany Hall and these and the Seabury investigations, uh, and because it was such a sensational case. So they put they assigned like a couple hundred officers to the case, and they were just interviewing everybody they could. The at one point, someone asked the DA if they had any any suspects, and he, he answered, uh, "Yes, everybody in New York." So he he even resorted, you know, when the when the police, you know, had not been able to make headway in the case, he resorted to hiring a, a private detective agency, the famed Pinkerton agency, to help out with the case, particularly by interviewing people out of state. So they were they were trying to find out, I mean, they were trying to speak to anybody that Vivian Gordon had any interaction with uh, to turn up some clues. And, you know, they were stumped for, uh, for months. That was infuriating for the NYPD, right? having to deal with what they thought was Pinkerton interference. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, there was a big, big, big uh, fight between you know, the reporters were, were all, were, you know, they reporters heard, heard uh, they were outside the door of a meeting between the district attorney and the police commissioner. And they heard shouting, and then the police commissioner storms out into the elevator, and the reporters are, like, pushing their way to get into the elevator to ask him. And, you know, he said, you know, he gives a very tight-lipped response. So. The cops were clearly not not happy about this. Uh, I mean, everybody was not happy about it. Governor FDR was was calling the police commissioner, was calling the DA. FDR also really wanted this case solved because you know the longer it went on, the the greater threat it was to his presidential aspirations. So he was also putting a lot of pressure uh, on the on the police and the dis- district attorney uh, to find the killers. So there are a lot of tragic moments in your book, and one especially sad had to do with Vivian's daughter, Benita. Her father and stepmother had tried hard to hide any and all information about her mother from her, but they can't hide it once Vivian is murdered because it's all over the papers. And it's all so overwhelming for Benita, right? She has a hard time processing it all. Uh, yes, uh, she had. So she had, since she was eight years old, uh, she'd seen her mother only once, uh, and that was, you know, all the time that all this time, uh, even Gordon had you know, struggled and you know, tried in the courts to get her daughter back. At one point, she tried to meet her at the school and persuade her to come you know, with her uh, back to New York City, uh, and. Benita, who had not seen her mother in many years at that point, was was horrified and um, did not come with her mother. You can, you can imagine what this must have done to Vivian Gordon, who was you know the, the one the one true love of her life, uh, her daughter, who she has not been able to see, and then and then rejects her um, was very traumatic for her. 
but that one moment was the only contact uh, that Anita had had with her mother. Vivian Gordon, through a mutual friend, you know, knew what was going on in Benita's life and, and found out about her. But Benita was not told really anything about what her mother was doing, and her father, you know, tried to shield her from from that because her mother at this point was a criminal, and you know, had concocted some you know story about how her mother was was acting as a stage actor, and then all of a sudden this news breaks, and you know, it's it's staring at. Uh, poor Benita in the face, and everybody knows about it. All her, you know, her teachers, her classmates, uh, and she was a very insecure and and uh, troubled teenager. And she's completely mortified. And she she has her own diary, and she's writing in her diary about how her, you know, her life is over, and everyone hates her now, and how her, you know, mother, how this. Um, terrible thing that has happened to her mother has has ruined her life. So she, about it was about a week or two after her mother's more uh, murder, Benita went to her kitchen and and uh, this was in the New Jersey suburb and uh, uh, closed the suburb of Philadelphia and closed the doors and turned on the oven and uh, you know, her stepmother discovered her sometime after that uh, and she's died by by suicide and you know this here you had this sort of sensational story that was already sensational uh, and now has resulted in this terrible tragic death of a 16 year old girl and so that sends you know even more shockwaves you know through New York City uh, and the country yeah just unbelievably heartbreaking <sighs> So this big break in the case comes, right, when this informant comes forward. Not much is known about this guy, but whoever he was, he got a huge amount of money for the information he passed on to police, $15,000. And what he was able to do is, is give police a name, the name of a man named David Butterman. Can you talk about this breakthrough moment in the case and how police are able to use his information to move things forward. Uh, yes, absolutely. Now, this was one of the most difficult parts of the story to get uh, much information on. It was uh, quite the the police commissioner was very tight lipped about it. He did not say exactly what the you know he didn't he didn't say who told him. Uh, he didn't say what the what the clue exactly was. He did admit that he'd paid someone uh, $15,000, uh, which uh, was donated uh, by the uh, police benefactor uh, group to cover the cost of this, of this information. He told the person under him, he's like, I have to, I have to do something on this case. Uh, I'm, I'm stepping aside for a few days to collect some information. And then he went off to to Boston, to a town called Revere, a suburb of Boston, where he met an associate of this David Butterman. David Butterman was, uh, essentially, he was a fence. Thieves would bring him uh, stolen goods, and, and he would find a buyer. And so after speaking to this associate, the police came back to New York. They raided uh, Butterman's uh, house early in the morning. And 
he and his wife uh, confessed that they had been given the day after the murder, uh, had been given uh, a ring and a uh, fur coat, expensive fur coat, uh, and an expensive watch, expensive Swiss diamond studded watch to fence. And the, the, these, these items uh, matched the description of, of Vivian Gordon's belongings. And so now at last, uh, the police uh, had a clue and they had another suspect because uh, David Bunnerman uh, named the man who had tried to sell these belongings to him. Right. And this character's name is Harry Stein. Can you tell us more about Harry Stein and his connection to Vivian Gordon? Uh, yes. So, you know, the police had this name, Harry Stein, and they had a witness who said that he tried to sell uh, Vivian Gordon's belongings to him, but they they didn't have any direct evidence tying him to the murder. Uh, so they, they kept this information secret and they tried to dig into this, this Harry Stein. So they discovered that one of uh, his associates uh, was a man named uh, Samuel Greenberg, uh, known as Gre- uh, as Greeny, and that uh, he and he and Greeny uh, often met at a seedy Romanian tea house. Uh, tea house was it was basically a, a coffee shop or a or a, a lunch shop. This one was on on Sixth Avenue, not far from from Times Square. You know, so so they uh, followed Stein and connected him with Greenberg, and so they started listening in on the phone calls. And when they were following Greenberg, they uh, followed him to a phone booth and heard him asking to speak to a Harry. But it wasn't it wasn't uh, uh, Harry Stein. It was uh, another man uh, who was known as uh, Harry Harvey. Uh, and they tracked they tracked this guy down. He was he was yet another thug, and tapped his phone and found out that he uh, met with uh, Harry Stein. They actually like heard him connect with Harry Stein. They were standing outside and, and, you know, watched Harry Stein make contact with this person. So they had this, you know, they had yet more information about Harry Stein, but they still weren't sure exactly what his connection was. Uh, And that's where this other thread that uh, Inspector Bruckman was working on uh, helped out where Bruckman had been, well, at the same time that Mulrooney was, was working on David Butterham and Harry Stein connection, Bruckman had been uh, investigating the bank heist in Norway uh, that Vivian Gordon had financed. And that operation had been run by a man that she described, named in her, her diary as, Henry, uh, as Harry Saunders. They didn't know who Harry Saunders was. They couldn't find any identification on, on him. They did find uh, a banknote that he had written to Vivian Gordon, uh, indicating that he owed her money. They found out a little bit about this bank heist that had, had gone awry. They didn't actually uh, rob the bank. Um, Vivian Gordon had spent the money for three men to uh, cross the Atlantic. They, they came up with some story. They were hiding out near Oslo. Uh, and then for some unexplained reason, uh, they abandoned the operation and eventually came back to the U.S. still owing Vivian Gordon money. So uh, Bruckman did a search uh, of the ship logs and discovered that 
uh, Harry Stein and Greenberg and a third man had been the ones who had been, you know, Harry Stein was the, the mysterious uh, Harry Saunders that been, had, Gordon had referred to as an alias. Uh, so now they had a connection between these guys, between Harry Stein and Vivian Gordon. They knew that uh, he owed her money, um, that they knew each other, that they'd worked together. But uh, they still didn't have, you know, any smoking gun or any direct evidence tying uh, Stein to the murder. A few brief messages, and we will return momentarily. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? And we are back again. Stein was the guy they were certain committed the murder. 
Well, yes. Yeah, so they did get did get their evidence finally when they uh, arrested uh, Harry Schlitten, aka uh, Harry Harvey, who had been in contact uh, with Greenberg and Stein. They, you know, brought him. They they arrested him. They interrogated him for days, and then he finally broke. And he uh, told a story about what had happened to Vivian Gordon. Uh, and the story was that he said that Radilov had asked uh, Stein and Greenberg uh, to deal with Vivian Gordon. And so what they had done, uh, they had hired this guy Schlitten to drive the car. Uh, he'd rented a car and the three of them had driven to a remote spot in the Bronx. And then he, this Schlitten and Greenberg waited in the car and Harry went back down, Harry Stein went back down to Vivian Gordon's apartment to pick up Vivian Gordon. Uh, and they persuaded her to come there with a ruse. Uh, they said that Stein told Vivian Gordon that his associate had some uncut diamonds, a quarter million dollars worth of uncut diamonds uh, that he was trying to unload. And Stein wanted Vivian Gordon to charm him, and then Stein would jump him and, and take, the, uh, take the gems. Uh, so this was an opportunity for Vivian Gordon to make a great deal of money, and she was desperate for money at this point because you know she'd been doing flying high during the Roaring Twenties, and then when the stock market crashed, she lost her investments. Uh, she lost her real estate because she couldn't afford to pay the mortgage. Uh, she, you know, wasn't the the rich man who had been her benefactors were no longer didn't have money themselves, so her operations were were struggling, uh, and she was broke. Uh, she she wrote in her diary. She she wrote the, uh, uh, one word on uh, the beginning of February for one day's just said stony as in stony broke. So she was desperate for money, and Harry Stein offered her, who she'd worked with before, offered her this opportunity to make a lot. And he persuaded her to get into a cab with him. Uh, this is the story that, that Schlitten told. And they came up, they, they, they drove up the cab to this meeting point uh, in the Bronx. And she, she had heard Greenberg's name, but she'd never actually seen him before. Uh, and uh, Stein, Stein said that he was the guy that they were going to, who, who, who they were going to steal the, the gems from. So according to Schlitten, uh, she got into the car and she was flirting uh, with Greenberg. She said, where have you been all my life? And as uh, Schlitten was driving, he heard Stein uh, and Greenberg uh, attack Newman Gordon and uh, force her down in the car seat and, and uh, strangle her uh, with a rope. Uh, you know, he claimed to have uh, heard this this uh, choking noise as she died, and then claimed that uh, he'd helped uh, Stein and Greenberg find a spot, a remote spot in Van Cortland Park, and dump Vivian Gordon's body there. Yeah, so so sad. Gosh. So I know you don't want to spoil the end for readers, the trial, whether Stein or anyone else was punished for her murder. So we can leave that for people who want to buy your book. But, but I do want to go back just briefly to the special hearings that were being conducted about the frame-ups 
including the one that had happened to Vivian in 1923, one of the witnesses called to testify was a judge named Stanley Renault, and he had been one of the judges in, engaged, allegedly, in this corruption. He, he stumbled with, with some of his answers, and, and it was just all so shady, you know, that the judge, the police, the system, and, and there was merit to Vivian's anger, right? She, she had been mistreated by the judicial system. Yeah, I mean, in these hearings, they discovered a few things. I mean, certainly uh, the vice cop, uh, Andrew uh, McLaughlin, was, was, was crooked. He had a huge amount of money in his bank account that he could not explain. Uh, you know, he said he wanted gambling. He was also implicated in some of the other frame-up cases. And, uh, you know, Grace uh, Robinson, the, the journalist, had gone, you know, she'd gone to his apartment and she'd seen how luxurious it was and, you know, how it was something that certainly no... You couldn't afford on a cop salary, um, so uh, clearly he was uh, making money in this racket uh, that you know we described the at the beginning. And Stanley Renault, I don't know whether he was actually crooked or not, whether he paid off, but certainly his policies enabled people like uh, McLaughlin to um, to run their schemes because basically, if the cop was there and testified. You know, Renault said, "Okay, guilty." He didn't. You know, there was no. Didn't matter. You know, the, the, the any challenge to the cop's testimony was was ignored. Conversely, if uh, the cop didn't show up, then uh, Renault would you know throw out the case. So that made it very easy for them to do their to run their scam. The basically, if the woman if the woman paid, uh, McLaughlin wouldn't or the other cops wouldn't show up, and uh, if she did pay, they'd show up and get sentenced. And now. It's there's there there were a few versions of what happened, uh, which you know I talk about in the book uh, between Vivian Gordon or or Benita Bischoff as she was still going by at that time, and Andrew McLaughlin, a couple of versions that she herself offers that are different. She may it's possible that she may have been down on her luck and you know was saw this handsome cop as you know an opportunity to saw him as someone who could help her out. But even if that interaction, even if that had crossed the line into prostitution, certainly she should not have been sentenced uh, on her first offense uh, to the reformatory. And, you know, when, when Renaud, the, the magistrate, was being grilled on this by, by Seabury, he clearly was very uncomfortable. You know, he talked about how this reformatory was really just a lovely school that, that you know, was a great place for young women to, to, to be. Uh, even though, in fact, it was uh, a prison. Uh, so I don't actually, uh, I, I'm not sure whether she was, I think she was unjustly sentenced uh, for sure. I I am sure that Andrew McLaughlin was crooked. I'm not sure that he was in the cahoots with Vivian Gordon's husband, John Bischoff, uh, to frame her, although Bischoff clearly wanted custody of of her daughter and clearly took advantage of the fact uh, that she'd been sentenced to uh, gain custody custody and prevent Vivian Gordon from, from having any further interaction with her beloved daughter. All right. Well, I appreciate this so much. It's really a complicated case. So many characters, so many layers to this as, as we've talked about. Uh, I do want to mention once more that your book is out on February 6th. 
And you do have a website with lots of information about your book. Uh, yeah, I've, uh, it's, the website is my name, michaelwoolreich.com. So, uh, and, but uh, if, you, if you Google the Bishop and the Butterfly and see my name, it's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-W-O-L-R-A-I-C-H.com. And that will tell you uh, all about the book. I've gotten already gotten some um, excellent reviews, and and expecting some more as we go uh, towards uh, get towards the launch on uh, on February sixth. And uh, I you know talk a little bit more about the the case, and I had some photos. I'm going to be adding more over over the course of the month as well. That's great. Say what? One more question, if you don't mind. This is about uh, FDR. Did his involvement in the case, did, did it help him politically in any way in his eventual presidential run? The way I would frame it is that it, it, wasn't, it, wasn't that, it wasn't that it helped him. It's that it could have prevented his nomination and his election if it had gone differently. It was, you know, he, he saw this. Uh, he was a very wily politician, and he saw this case uh, as a threat. And he made every effort to very cautiously and carefully uh, neutralize that threat. He, he survived this challenge and was able to win the nomination. I think even more significant was that what he did ended up uh, changing the course of New York uh, City history because. You know, he had early on been trying to keep this case, keep keep the anti-corruption investigation led by Judge Seabury, keep it contained. And because of all the attention that Vivian Gordon's case brought to that investigation, uh, he finally felt obligated to expand the authority of that investigation. And then they started interviewing everybody in Tammany Hall, all the way up uh, to the mayor, to the mayor Jimmy Walker, and uncovered you know a lot of corruption in New York City, you know, there, that, that's a whole nother story, which I get into in the book. And, you know, I'll let your, your readers explore that. Uh, but what that investigation found essentially broke the power of Tammany Hall, which had ruled New York for so many years. And, you know, part of my writing about the book was to be able to tell the story of the murder investigation, but also the story about this history of New York City and the United States. Uh, through the lens of her murder. Got it. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Congratulations on the publication of your book. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's been an honor to, to speak with you, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on the show. Again, I have been speaking to Michael Woolreich. He is the author of The Bishop and the Butterfly, Murder, Politics, and the End of the Jazz Age. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.